one sort of surprising fact about the global economy, um, and you know, this tells you a lot of things about different the intersection of different trends. But over the last ten years, uh, Japanese institutional investors were bigger buyers of foreign bonds than Chinese institutional investors, unambiguously. So over the past ten years, the secret bid force helping keep uh, a lot of global bond yields down was actually Japan more than China. Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyricuse Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all of the usual places. My guest today for the 41st episode of The Hale Report is Brad Setzer, an economist and the Whitney Shepherdson Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. I've long admired Brad for his deep knowledge of global economic data and his ability to interpret that information. I'm sure that you will soon hear what I mean. Brad is one of our country's most highly respected analysts of global capital flows, national tax competition, trade imbalances, sovereign debt restructuring, a skill that I can imagine is in high demand these days. Brad, welcome to the Hale Report on Fed Day. What did you think of the Fed decision, by the way? Do you worry about inflation? Uh, I mean, one obviously has to worry about inflation after inflation surge last year. I worry a lot less about inflation now than I did uh, last spring. That's good. I think all of us feel that way, and it looks like the market thinks the same. Well, let me tell you, our listeners, a little more about our guest today. Uh, Brad Setzer recently served as advisor to U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai and then returned to his previous work at the Council on Foreign Relations. Although I was happy for Brad's opportunity to serve, I was delighted when he returned to the Council so I could attend his meetings and once again follow his blog and his Twitter account. Before joining the USTR, Brad spent the previous five years as a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he wrote the Follow the Money blog, analyzing global capital flows to discuss issues including Puerto Rico's debt, and Taiwan's foreign exchange reserves. He also previously served as an official at the Treasury Department, and he co-wrote a book with Nouriel Roubini, Bailouts and Bail-ins, Responding to Financial Crises in Emerging Economies back in 2004. As our listeners know, I always ask my guests about the path they took to where they are today. Brett, how did you first become interested in economics, if I can ask? Oh, I guess I've probably always been interested in economics. Um, uh, I guess uh, it, it probably started when uh, I, I come from Kansas. My grandparents were farmers, and uh, you know every every farmer listens to the noon crop report to get the latest market prices, and uh, just having some sense that there are this uh, these economic forces out there that were having a pretty direct impact on people's livelihoods. Uh, but then. Um, you know, it, I took a rather 
winding approach to end up where I am now. I think the the key event was actually my first job. Uh, I was uh, hired as a, an economist at the U.S. Treasury, largely because I didn't want to go into management consulting. And I was able to to get, uh, I, I'd had a great time at Oxford as a PhD student without having any real uh, f- desire to teach and no real idea of what I wanted to do. Um, and I arrived at the U.S. Treasury right uh, as Thailand's uh, financial crisis uh, erupted, so in July 1997, and that led to uh, my initial interest in emerging economies and global finance. Wow, right into the Thai bat crisis. That had to have been a baptism by fire, really, for well, what uh, you were doing. As a junior economist, you're not really under fire, but it was, um, it just, it, it made the world of international finance seem interesting. It was exciting to hear the topics that you're working on, on the, on NPR every morning, uh, to read about them in the New York Times. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to ask you first about a common interest that we have, China. And China's economic trajectory right now is seen as being critical to avoiding slower growth and a recession this year. But how do we know anything about Chinese statistics? Um, you wrote a great piece about uh, how, why those statistics don't add up. And one of my favorite quotes of all time, China, China's reported goods trade surplus doesn't line up with China's reported goods trade surplus. If, if you can go into a, a couple of, maybe take a little bit of a dive with us into the world of Chinese statistics and how you see them and interpret them. Well, I guess the starting point there is that uh, there have always sort of been doubts about the accuracy of China's reported GDP numbers. Uh, they've always, you know, up until very recently, the headline GDP numbers were far too smooth to be credible. Growth was always about the same, uh, always quite strong. And uh, some other measures of activity inside China, whether it's sort of steel production, railway transport, so forth and so on, uh, harder measures uh, that require, uh, uh, you know, that are less accurate in some ways, but more accurate because they are verifiable, always pointed to uh, slightly more volatility in China's growth path than uh, was present in the the headline data. There's also some really technical things that China doesn't produce GDP series in levels. Uh, so the the GDP number just kind of appears out of uh, out of almost thin air. Um, it of course relates to some other measures, but it is not in any way comparable to the caliber of the GDP data that the U.S. or the EU or even big other big emerging economies put out. Um, so one harder measure of Chinese activity, one that tended to until recently, uh, I thought give a, a relatively reliable read on trends in China, uh, was the trade data. You know, imports are correlated with internal demand. They're not perfectly correlated with internal demand. Imports in China actually have tended to grow a little bit more slowly than uh, China's growth after the global financial crisis. But the fluctuations in imports were kind of a a measure that one could uh, be relatively confident in, largely because they had to line up and they generally did line up with other countries' exports. At the same time, China's export data gave you some measure of uh, what one large part of China's economy was doing. So I think, you know, when when thinking about China, it, it it helps to, on one level, understand what is and what isn't in the headline data, 
um, and then kind of develop a few indicators that you tend to have confidence in. And the trade data historically has been one of the data points that I have tended to have confidence in. It's also one of the data points that I tend to watch the most closely. Um, and consequently, uh, when uh, at a certain point in the last two years, it sort of became clear that the customs trade data, the, the data that comes out monthly, the first print, so to speak, which only covers goods, uh, was diverging quite significantly from uh, the balance of payments data, which also has a measure of goods trade. Uh, there's a couple of small technical adjustments uh, between the customs measure and the balance of payments measure, uh, transportation services, sort of the freight costs to bring goods in China should be netted out. But that was a predictable adjustment, didn't materially change trends. And then all of a sudden, guess what? China's goods customs surplus soars and the balance of payment measure is $200 billion, which is like a percentage point of GDP, smaller. So that's why I said China's goods balance doesn't line up with China's goods balance. The levels differ. The trends also differed a bit. So what do you think the reason for that was? Is that because trade data became so politicized that they were incentivized to make changes? I know in reporting local data throughout China, because targets are in uh, reaching targets are part of the you know political succession uh, structure, that there that's why those statistics are often wrong. But why was the trade dead? Why two years ago, do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't know that I have a, a, a definitive uh, answer. Um, I think the official answer is that the State Administration of Foreign Exchange, I kind of love the Chinese bureaucratic names because they're always kind of old fashioned. There's always a state. There's always an administrator. You know, it's kind of mm -hmm. it's it's a muscular description of uh, <laughs> of a, a bureaucrat of an agency. Uh, but the State Administration of Foreign Exchange, which takes the customs data and turns it into the balance of payments data, uh, did make some adjustments to their methodology that coincide with these uh, divergences. Um, my suspicion is that it uh, served the uh, broader interest of China to report a smaller balance of payment surplus in two ways. Uh, one, uh, it, it att attracts a little bit less criticism from its China's trading partners. A lot of the uh, IMF's work is based on the balance of payments measure rather than the customs measure. And so there's sort of various technical uh, indicators that the IMF and the U.S. Treasury look at. And one of them is the balance of payments surplus, not the customs goods surplus. So a smaller uh, balance of payments surplus means a little less in a formal sense, international scrutiny. Um, and then I think from the point of view of the State Administration of Foreign Exchange, a smaller uh, current account and goods surplus uh, made it easier to report smaller errors and omissions in China's overall data. So from their point of view, I suspect uh, these adjustments were designed to reduce the, uh, the reported errors, the difference between the, the measured inflows from the goods surplus, the measured outflows from tourism, and then the implied accumulation of financial assets in China. Those numbers weren't adding up. They couldn't find enough financial assets. So the easiest thing to make them 
line up a little bit better is to find some adjustments to the goods balance to bring it down. The problem with that is that all of a sudden the balance of payments goods balance looks at odds with the customs data. But to be honest, we don't know the motive. Uh, it's it's still being assessed. What, what's clear is that China's customs surplus soared in the two years after the pandemic. And I think that's a real number. It matches with the counterpart data. Okay. And there are some things that aren't even being reported anymore at all in the same period. Um, and population data, I hear from many people that things they used to depend on, data sets and so forth, are no longer available. My suspicion is this is because, because of COVID, China's economy was tanking, and this was an attempt not to make that as visible, internally or externally. I mean, I think that's reasonable. I think it is. It has also been the case that uh, uh, since roughly 2014, um, the caliber of China's uh, 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 the data around China's foreign exchange reserves around its uh, intervention in the foreign exchange market has gone down. Um, I think uh, presumably because of uh, some of the scrutiny that China faced uh, during the the 2015 depreciation and the use of reserves, um, but also because uh, at some point, I think uh, the Chinese concluded that open and transparent just meant more criticism. Um, and it was better to keep a lot of the state's activity a little bit uh, quieter, a little bit more hidden. But there's, there, to my mind, there's no doubt uh, that the quality of Chinese data has has fallen in the last 10 years. And that is a concern, a real concern. Well, that would align with Xi Jinping's term in office and where politics, you know, trumped up uh, economics, right? But I do think that's changing. Now, I think that there has been somewhat of a pivot. Um, you had mentioned foreign exchange. I know back 15 years ago with my husband, David Hale, we wrote an article for foreign affairs called Reconsidering Revaluation. And basically the point was that there was a lot of political pressure at that time for China to revalue by 20% or so. But our point was that would not materially affect the trade surplus. And that also that at that time, do trade surpluses really matter? I would really be interested in what you think about that. Um, would revaluation affect the trade surplus now if that were to take place? Do you think China's um, currency is now being manipulated? Manipulation is a loaded term. Yes, and it has, yes. a, has a specific meaning in yes, U.S. law. <laughs> yes. um, so in the narrow sense... Guided. Uh, How about guided? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't meet the technical criteria to right, be labeled right, right. as a manipulator right okay. now. Right. Um, it is managed. It is guided. Uh, it is not uh, uh, a market determined exchange rate, even if uh, the PBOC at times says it is. I think my perspective on the exchange rate issue maybe is a little different than yours. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, uh, I think there's now reasonably good empirical work that shows that China's trade balance and broader uh, export performance does respond in the expected way to a change in the uh, real effective value. So the, the, the value of the exchange rate adjusted for inflation differentials. Um, it, 
it's probably actually a little bit more risk. China's economy is a little bit more responsive to moves in the exchange rate than the U.S. economy. Uh, the general rule of thumb for the U.S. would be a 10% move in the dollar is like a percentage point or a percentage point and a half. Uh, swing leads to that kind of swing in the trade balance in either direction. I think for China, the preponderance of evidence would suggest it's above 1.5 percentage points. Um, and I think there's actually very clear evidence that during the period of time when the, the yuan was uh, appreciating, getting stronger, uh, relative to the dollar, relative to most currencies around the world, China's export growth tends to match global trade growth. And then in periods of time when China's exchange rate falls, uh, with a little bit of a lag, Chinese export growth tends to outperform global trade. And over time, that leads to a pretty significant impact on uh, the trade balance. So I do think there's a relationship that the expected economic relationship between the exchange rate and the trade balance does apply to China. Does apply. Okay. You know, um, maybe turning from China to Japan, um, and I really um, enjoyed your comment that American interest in Japan has fallen over time, but that you don't fit that trend, that you pay attention to the Japanese balance of payments more than you more than you did 10 years ago. Um, and you also said that big changes are afoot. I think today's Japanese, the JG bond uh, purchases were the highest on record. What's going on in Japan? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really confused. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different things going on in, uh, in Japan. Um, I mean, one sort of surprising fact about the global economy, um, and, you know, this tells you a lot of things about different, the intersection of different trends, but over the last 10 years, uh, Japanese institutional investors were bigger buyers of foreign bonds than Chinese institutional investors, unambiguously. So over the past 10 years, the secret bid force helping keep uh, a lot of global bond yields down was actually Japan more than China. Now, during that period, China starts doing all of its policy lending, the Belt and Road. China does a lot of things. It's just buying a lot fewer bonds, I think largely because of a policy decision. And because uh, interest rates in Japan were absolutely low, uh, Kuroda had uh, a policy of uh, uh, trying to reflate the Japanese economy with uh, uh, short-term interest rates that were a little bit below zero, and then yield curve control, which kept uh, longer-term interest rates out to, to 10 years, kind of capped. Uh, and so short-term interest rates were low. And then the slope of the Japanese yield curve, the difference between uh, a deposit and a 10-year bond or a 15-year bond or a 20-year bond, there wasn't much of an upward slope. So you didn't get a lot more yield for in technical terms, taking on more duration going out the yield curve. And so faced with that constellation, Japanese institutional investors uh, did two things. Some took on more currency risk to get more yield, buying foreign bonds unhedged. And then some started, in effect, borrowing dollars, paying short-term U.S. interest rates, and buying longer-dated U.S. agency bonds, U.S. corporate bonds, and in so doing, capturing the difference, both in the shape of the curve, the, the upward slope in the U.S. curve, 
and then also capturing the risk premia associated with agencies relative to treasuries or corporate bonds relative to uh, treasuries. One of the kind of weird things about the Japanese economy is the Japanese companies are insanely cash rich. They don't actually need to borrow because they're they're sitting on so many deposits. They're they're lenders to the rest of the economy. So Japanese banks kind of can't do what a bank normally does, which is take in deposits from households and lend it to businesses. The businesses were giving them deposits. So the Japanese had to kind of be creative. The Japanese financial system had to be creative in that respect. And then Kuroda, the governor of the Bank of Japan, uh, did his version of, of quantitative easing. He started buying up a lot of Japanese government bonds. And so some of the Japanese policy banks, post bank, the like, sold JGBs to the government. They had to put the money somewhere. They kind of, just to kind of be like technical and jargony, they swapped the yen for dollars and they bought U.S. investment grade bonds. So you get this big outflow, 100, 200 billion a year of foreign bonds coming out of purchases of foreign bonds by Japanese investors. And then Kuroda kind of has kept Japanese monetary policy uh, expansionary. There's been a lag in the pickup of inflation. Uh, Japan was below its inflation target going into this kind of episode. So Jap Japanese monetary policy hasn't adjusted. The Fed, now the ECB, have adjusted. Uh, the shapes of the curves have started to change. And so all of a sudden, the economics that drove money out of Japan and into the global bond market have reversed. Mm -hmm. You cannot borrow short-term money in dollars and buy 10-year treasuries and make money. You lose money. Right. That's what it means with an inverted yield curve. It's right. actually hard to just buy investment-grade bonds with uh, with hedged yen. It's just the cost of borrowing short-term is too high for those kinds of investments to make sense. So Japanese investors uh, let their portfolios run off. So you kind of have this fall in Japanese buying, and now it's actually net sales. Some of that's just roll off. Um, and then now there's a lot of uh, doubt about uh, whether Kuroda's policy of yield curve control, which was keeping the 10-year Japanese government bond first at 25 basis points, a quarter point interest. Now it's 50. So 50 basis points, that's the upper bound um, about whether that policy still makes sense, whether the Bank of Japan will maintain it. And because people don't really believe that it still makes sense, don't really believe that it will be maintained, Kuroda's term is about to expire. Right. Everyone is betting that Japanese interest rates will, oh my God, they're going to go from half a point to a point. You know, 50 bips <laughs> to 100 bips, you know, hey, um, not that big of a swing. But right. in for Japan, that's a huge swing. Um, and so uh, there's just in order to keep maintain the yield curve control, the Bank of Japan is having to buy the basically the entire stock of 10 year J Japanese government bonds and then some because, you know, they lend them out into the market and then the market sells them and they have to buy them twice, you know, kind of some silly stuff like that. Well, you know, I, it always seemed to me if they were trying to um, provoke inflation, that the easiest way to do that would be to raise wages. And especially, as you mentioned, uh, Japanese companies are cash rich. But what I've been hearing is this is the season for wage negotiation, that they might finally go up. There might be, for, you know, a 5% increase. At the same time, they're thinking, Kishida is thinking of um, increasing the consumption tax. 
If that no, happens. not again. No. Yes. yes. No. <laughs> I mean, the, the one thing that kills uh, inflation in Japan is raising the consumption tax. It's just, it is wildly deflationary. The households don't actually have a savings buffer. It, it leads to, a, it's predictably leads to recessions. And, and, but it's, it's a real thing. So we'll see what happens with that. We'll see what happens. I mean, it, but it just works. It works totally against the reflationary impulse from the Bank of Japan. Uh, the 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 initial Kuroda impulse, kind of back in 2014, 2013, 2014, sort of showed some signs of working. And then there was this big three percentage point, one and a half points of GDP consumption tax increase, and momentum just disappeared. Japan went back into a recession. Japan actually did another consumption tax increase that people have kind of forgotten about because it was in the fourth quarter of 2019, which was just before uh, COVID. So it kind of gets blurred together. But that also led to this, you know, pretty sharp fall in consumption. It's just, I mean, I guess it, it would uh, deflate the Japanese economy. So if that's your goal is directionally right. Uh, but monetary policy in Japan is still pushing for expansion and inflation. So there would be a bit of a tension there. You can right. tell I'm not a big fan of uh, the consumption <laughs> tax hike uh, policies of, uh, of uh, either yes. Abe or Kushida. Well, there's some I was hoping Kushida would, would have a more enlightened would be different. View. I think they're all of the same cut and cloth. So um, I, I've heard talk about having a consumption tax here too. Um, it would make more sense that here. Tax, yes, it would make exactly. more sense here. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, uh, you know, you have to solve the issue around regressivity. But, you know, we're, we're an excess demand country. Japan is not. Exactly. Um, uh, it, it, directionally, it, it does reduce inflationary pressures. Um, I, I'm relatively confident uh, no tax increase nor, mm -hmm. nor any tax decrease will pass through a divided Congress in the next two years. But That's you never know what may happen in the future. We've certainly learned that, haven't we, <laughs> over the past few years? You know, uh, speaking of Japan, and I know you have an interest in industrial policy, and the Biden administration actually issued um, uh, a short statement about that. Um, is Did industrial policy lead to what Japan is today? Do you think the United States needs an industrial policy? What are the benefits? What are the problems attached to something like that? I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, at least I don't consider myself an expert in uh, Japan's development and its uh, post-war economic uh, history. I mean, as, a, as you implied, I've gotten more interested in Japan over time and I've gotten more interested in the financial side. It's, it's just there's some really uh, interesting kind of technical financial issue, uh, issues. I think the conventional wisdom is that uh, Japanese industrial policies in the post-war period did contribute to its catch-up. Uh, you know, industrial policies give kind of a state impulse, whether that's tax breaks or directed credit uh, or uh, other incentives that are targeted at particular sectors. Um, so it's not a, a, a neutral approach by the government across all industries. It's clearly a policy of favoring uh, specific sectors. And, you know, Japan wanted to kind of catch up and move into uh, the more uh, technologically 
rapidly developing sectors over time. So to go from textiles to autos to semiconductors and so forth. So, you know, there were clearly policies that that encouraged Japanese firms to invest in the sectors that the the Japanese government had believed were necessary for Japan to to develop more quickly. Um, the risk on that is that you end up basically giving tax breaks to favored industries, that you end up subsidizing uncompetitive sectors, and rather than catching up, it becomes uh, support for uh, some forms of stagnation. Um, and then there's an intrinsic element of favoritism. You're favoring some sectors over others. Uh, some, you know, a, a tax break that is uniform is not an industrial policy. Um, a credit that is made available to everyone in the economy is not an industrial policy. The the current question for the U.S. is, you know, which has been answered is more or less yes. I mean, I think the Biden administration refers to it as an industrial strategy. Um, but, you know, clearly the U.S. has decided to adopt an industrial strategy to kind of achieve two goals. One goal is to accelerate investment in and deployment in kind of clean energy technology technologies that produce ener uh, energy with less in less carbon intensive ways. Um, and then also to accelerate investments in uh, sectors where the U.S. has some form of strategic dependence or vulnerability in kind of a new world of strategic competition and uh, in the, the post-COVID world of concerns about strategic vulnerabilities and economic coercion. Um, that includes semiconductors, obviously, but a lot of um, critical materials, uh, sort of rare earths, which are used in um, uh, permanent magnets and have some very specific defense applications, but also um, can make a, an electric vehicle motor rotate without friction. I mean, a, it's a frictionless magnet, a very efficient magnet. Um, uh, and then some of the uh, ingredients, chemical ingredients for electric vehicle batteries. Um, and I, I think that those uh, those decisions are basically uh, uh, smart. I think we we do need uh, to incentivize investments. And the theory is that by investing more, you, you know, you build up know-how, you learn by doing, and costs come down very quickly. And it's better for the U.S. if that process occurs here in the U.S. It's better for the climate and uh, future uh, carbon dioxide trends if the U.S. deploys uh, clean energy technologies more rapidly. And it's better for consumers if uh, the green transition movement towards more you know, carbon dioxide, you know, less CO2 intensive uh, methods of, of creating energy uh, doesn't come at a higher cost to consumers if there are low cost ways of doing that are developed over time. So uh, I sure, sure think it's worth a try. If you'd like to become a supporter of EconView and the Hale Report, please visit our website and become a subscriber. Well, I think the opposite of these kind of incentives economic incentives are, of course, sanctions. So what you're talking about when you're encouraging your own industry, you are discouraging somebody else's. And the Chip, CHIPS Act is a good example of that. But um, I'm just really interested in what you think about sanctions. Um, recently, uh, you responded in a tweet to a really excellent article in The Economist about 
the Russian oil sanctions, for example, and how that the purpose of those might have been to lower the price of Russian oil, the purpose that the sanctions architects wanted. And it certainly did that. But um, uh, are sanctions, do sanctions really work? Have they worked? Russia doesn't seem to be much worse off economically, or is that an, uh, an erroneous impression based on what you see? Um, well, there are a lot there of are, questions there. Yeah, Sorry. there's a lot of questions there. And there's actually like, uh, there, there are an also an awful lot of different kinds of, of sanctions. So there are sanctions on financial flows, um, which, uh, uh, work in the narrow sense of blocking the financial flow. I mean, uh, OFAC, the agency of treasury that enforces sanctions is, is, is actually quite feared globally. No one, uh, wants to risk, a, a fine from violating sanctions. Some multi-billion dollar fines have been handed out to European banks. I mean, uh, OFAC has taken, uh, uh, quite, you know, it, it, it is a very credible enforcement agency. Uh, so it, it works in that sense. Um, but in some cases, cutting off financial flows doesn't have that big of an impact on the country that is sanctioned. Uh, Russia going into the invasion on Ukraine was running a quite big current account surplus. It didn't need to borrow from the rest of the world. It was actually lending to the world. Uh, so in, in the sense, there's a difference between working in the sense of the designated flow is cut off and working in the sense of creating uh, a major economic shock in the country that is sanctioned. And then even if you create an economic shock in the country that is sanctioned, if the goal is to force policy change, there's no guarantee an economic downturn leads to a reevaluation of of basic security policy. I mean, we've, we've seen that with respect to Iran. I mean, the sanctions have worked in the sense of limiting financial flows and oil flows. They've worked in the sense of uh, shrinking over time the size of the Iranian economy, uh, but they haven't succeeded at changing some of the more troubling aspects of, of Iranian policy. The, the financial sanctions on Russia worked in a narrow sense, uh, but they didn't work in the sense of uh, creating on their own a big downturn in Russia, the Russian economy that would prompt a reevaluation of policy. The And I think realistically, uh, financial sanctions on a, a country that is running a very substantial current account surplus, so a big trade surplus and lending rather than borrowing from the world, were never going to be decisive. So what might be decisive, but it's much more painful for the U.S. and our allies, uh, would be cutting off the flow of Russian oil to the world, Russian oil and gas. Although the Russians actually cut off the flow of gas, uh, we never decided to to self to sanction ourselves. The Russians tried to use gas to put pressure on Europe by deciding to shut down their pipelines, the pipelines from their side. But on the okay. the oil side, the U.S. and the EU did decide in a phased way to introduce uh, a set of, of, of sanctions, uh, whereby first the U.S., Canada, Britain, well, Britain was a little more lagged, uh, decided to stop importing Russian oil. Well, U.S. and Canada didn't really import that much Russian oil, so it didn't have that big of an impact. Um, and then uh, there were concerns that the EU's decision, because the EU actually does import a lot of Russian oil, uh, that the EU decision would lead 
to higher oil prices uh, and thus wouldn't necessarily achieve the intended effect. If the intended effect is to squeeze Russia's resources, if Russia sells 2 million barrels a day less, Russia exports about 8 million barrels a day. So if it loses 2 million, it loses 25%. But if the price of oil goes, goes up by up, 30%. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. That's, that's, that's right. the problem. <laughs> right, so right, what, right. what I was noting is that I think over time, the goal of the sanctions shifted from kind of Europe should stop importing Russian oil so that Russia gets uh, less revenue. Uh, and that oil is taken off the global market and the world uh, kind of adjusts. That was one theory of the case. The problem with that theory of the case was it was probably pushing Russian oil prices up. There was an anticipation that Russian barrels would disappear. So I think the theory of the case came to be the the market closest to Russia, where Russia has can export it with the smallest amount of friction, with the least transaction cost, is going to stop buying Russian oil. Uh, but the, through the various measures that were introduced uh, to give uh, you know low price exemption, you know an exemption for uh, the use of ships and insurance if Russian oil was priced below a certain threshold, the intent there was to introduce enough friction in the market that Russia could could only sell at a discount, but the Russia would still sell to make it to kind of structurally embed in the global market a Russian discount, in part because it's just, you know, kind of silly logistical stuff. You know, it just takes longer to, to put oil on a boat from the Russian ports in uh, the, the Baltic and the Black Sea and some of the, the ports uh, uh, in the Arctic um, and then float the oil all the way to India. Just it's it's a lot closer to just ship it to Europe. The ships can kind of go and turn back and come over. It doesn't take as many ships. It's just faster uh, and more efficient. Um, and so, you know, it's not an enormous frictional cost, but I think the goal came to be to introduce that frictional cost to make sure the, you know, to keep the oil flowing to the global economy because the global economy is unfortunately still rather dependent on oil. And can't easily absorb the loss of 2 million barrels a day, but to make Russia absorb the extra cost. So, so far, so good. I mean, I think that's been the result. Um, the less comforting reality, though, is that, um, you know, even if Russia is selling its oil at $60 a barrel, it's not going to be under that much financial or fiscal pressure. It, that on its own isn't going to change the trajectory of the war in Ukraine. Uh, the, the decision... Uh, if Russia makes a decision to adjust, hopefully it does and pull back and negotiate and return to the pre pre-invasion status quo, at least if it, it, that won't be because of these sanctions, it, it will be, it won't directly be because of the sanctions. The sanctions have made continuing the current course over time more costly, but they haven't made it financially impossible. So are there unintended consequences of these financial sanctions, the restrictions on trade? Um, you mentioned Iran. Iran and China have grown closer and are doing, you know, more trade together than they were previously. Um, I know Xi Jinping has it's been reported that he's going to be visiting uh, Putin this month in Moscow. Have By all of these things that we've done, including SWIFT and so forth, are we creating two distinct trading blocks 
and with a lot of additional friction that will mean a lot of additional costs. Do you think that's what will will be the net result of what's happened? Uh, yes and no. Um, okay. Yeah, yes, in the sense that um, uh, over time, unless there's a, a big settlement between Russia and fundamentally the EU, I mean, Russia mm-hmm. never really has traded that much with the U.S. We're, we're a little bit, you know, we both produce plenty of oil. Um, the EU doesn't have any oil. I mean, I'm, I'm leaving out like, you know, Norway's not in the EU, it's in Europe geographically, but basically the EU countries import all their oil. Um, the U.S. doesn't. Uh, and Russia's basically an, an oil and metals exporter, uh, oil, metals, fertilizer, and ag. Uh, the natural market for most of Russia's oil and gas, given their current physical infrastructure and the geographic locations of their oil and gas fields in Western Siberia, West, not East, is to flow to Europe. Um, I think now it is uh, extremely likely that there will be investments in infrastructure to move that oil and gas eventually by pipeline uh, to the East, to China. Uh, both because China is the world's biggest importer and because this would be uh, a very sanctions remote flow. It's also a, a tanker remote flow. Um, it's very hard, would be very hard for, say, s- sanctions on shipping uh, to ever interfere with that pipeline flow. So I think that aspect of the world economy has changed. I think China and Russia will find ways to settle their bilateral trade without touching the dollars or euros they already have. Um, you know, Iran, it depends on choices that Iran makes. Uh, the um, the infrastructure that is needed uh, has to go through a third country. It, it can't be a direct or go by ship. Um, but China, China can get its resources, a lot of them from Russia, um, but probably not all of them unless it wants to be fully dependent on Russian oil. And even if it were fully dependent on Russian oil, Chinese demand is a little, a little higher than what Russia can supply. Um, and then China needs outlets for its manufacturers and um, Russia is not big enough. So it would take a much bigger shift in the global economy than has happened to date for China to have a bigger economic stake in its relation, economic relationship with Russia than its, than its economic relationships with the U.S., the EU, um, Southeast Asia. So we've been talking about the superpowers, basically, but what about emerging markets, Brad? And uh, what do you see in terms of emerging market debt in a world of, you know, where these uh, poor countries that don't have an account surplus um, that are dependent on outside sources for fuel and for food. Um, the dollar has gotten stronger. Interest rates are higher. How are they going to ever be able to get out of this trap in a, in, unless there's tremendous growth? And where will that growth come from? How do you look at, at uh, what needs to be done? Are we, are we heading towards some kind of debt jubilee, in other words? Um. Uh, not really, um, is the, the quick answer. It, it, I don't think it is uh, analytically helpful to equate uh, all of the emerging economies with each other. Exactly. Um, there's, there's just, it, it is a very uh, diverse group. Uh, there's a subset of emerging economies 
that run current account surpluses, that have more reserves and they have external debt uh, in a narrow financial sense, they benefit from higher interest rates and they're not at risk of, of default. Um, there are even countries that you don't think of that are in a pretty like decent financial position. I mean, India is not in a horrible position. Brazil's not in a horrible position. Brazil has some real problems, uh, but Brazil still has more foreign currency reserves, Brazil's government, than the government has foreign currency debt. That's just a fundamental change from the 1980s. But there's a pretty big set of, of emerging economies, what some people now call frontier economies, the kind of riskier group uh, and often poorer groups of emerging economies uh, that are in real financial trouble. You know, Egypt, Turkey, Pakistan are the most biggest, most financially significant, uh, but most of the non-oil exporting countries in Africa have uh, got themselves into some debt distress. Um, and these countries are, are struggling right now. I mean, oil prices aren't as high as they were, but they're still pretty high. Uh, so the cost of importing fuel has gone up. Uh, Europe has basically bid most poor countries, most lower income countries out of the market for traded natural gas. So there's power shortages. Uh, Pakistan can't afford to keep the electricity on. The whole country uh, went dark. The yeah. entire country. It's amazing. Yeah. And then there's a, a, a stock of legacy debt from the period when uh, the U.S. and European financial markets were exuberant and bonds could be issued by poorer countries. Uh, you know, Ghana issued a lot of, you know, issued 10 billion in bonds. Sri Lanka issued 10 billion in bonds. Uh, Pakistan issued 10 billion, but that's not so much for its economy. Uh, and then there's a big stock of loans to the Chinese policy banks, the uh, China XM and the China Development Bank collectively lent at least half a trillion dollars between 2010 and 2020. So 50 billion a year on net, which is, you know, it's actually a big sum relative to the size of a lot of these economies. Uh, it was a big sum for the low-income countries in Africa, and now they can't pay. The Chinese have made it abundantly clear that there will be no jubilee for those debts. They are not in the business of, you know, China views itself as a developing country, a poor country, and is not in the business of forgiving the debts owed to the uh, the Chinese people or their policy banks. Uh, private creditors who lent bond, who bought the bonds have made it clear that they're not in the business of forgiving debts either. So the jubilee movement was a movement that basically said the U.S., Japan, Europe, a few others, uh, should as a matter of policy not insist on collecting on legacy debts owed by the very poorest countries. Um, and so it was a policy decision. And it's also a little bit of a reflection of financial reality that most countries weren't making payments. Um, we're now in a world where uh, the weakest of these credits are not making payments. Pakistan is bizarrely still struggling to make payments, even though it probably shouldn't. Um, but the creditors are not in a move to forgive. So we're just at, a, at an impasse. Uh, and unfortunately, it, my sense is that uh, that impasse is going to continue for a lot longer. We haven't yet seen uh, a, a model whereby the big policy banks, XM and CDB on the Chinese side, uh, restructure transparently in the light of day so everybody knows the terms, and they also provide 
meaningful debt relief. It is quite clear that no one expects the Chinese policy banks to reduce the face value of their loans. It is also clear that the world believes that China signed on in the the G20 communique in the fall of 2020 called the Common Framework to reduce the coupon, the interest rate on its bonds, on a uh, on its loans, on a case by case basis after the IMF makes a judgment. Uh, the IMF has made a judgment in Zambia. It wants a much lower coupon, and the lock in that coupon for 20 years, uh, a concessional coupon below China's cost of funds. It wants this. It well, it, it hasn't been formally released, but it's clear that Sri Lanka needs something similar. It's clear that Ghana is going to need something similar. There are a few Ethiopia. There's going to be a, a set of countries, but China has not yet been willing to accept uh, that concession. The commit to accept that concessional coupon. So there's just a, a stalemate, and there's actually been a lot of um, uh, uh, unfortunate friction where China is blocking. IMF lending, making it hard for the World Bank and the other multilateral development banks to lend uh, because it doesn't accept the IMF's uh, restructuring model. And until there's a, in my view is, um, you know, the IMF, others can maybe adjust precisely how concessional the coupon will be. but I don't think there should be any debate that a concessional coupon is necessary. Uh, that these countries, some of these countries, just took on too much debt, and the solution when you take on too much debt is, you know, you don't get paid back quickly, and you don't get paid back at high interest rates. Um, but we don't, we've not seen the the template for restructuring that is acceptable to the Chinese policy banks. Um, We also haven't yet seen the restructuring template that is acceptable to bondholders. I mean, there's a sort of a tension, I think, between um, how the development banks have tended to look at low-income countries. They've tended to think they don't have much capacity to carry debt uh, because they're poor and they need concessional financing. And the commercial lenders to some of the like upper income, low income countries, like not hundred, you know, like there's, there's always a gradation. Zambia is uh, wealthier than the, the Central African Republic and the creditors to Zambia think that Zambia can support a lot more debt than the World Bank, the IMF has traditionally thought a low income country can support. Now, I think the creditors recognize that Zambia has more debt than it can support, but there isn't yet a meeting of minds on the right future level of Zambia's debt. But until there's agreement with China, because China is the biggest credit, China meaning the policy banks, uh, you're never going to test and find where there's a meeting with the the bondholders. So right now we're at a total stalemate. It's not going to be good for growth. It's not going to be good for development. Um, and it is it is unfortunate. I think you've really illustrated China's role in all of this just perfectly. And I don't think a lot of people truly understand that and the issues with non-transparency and so forth. Um but anyway, I hope the common framework does move forward. Um, it probably won't Actually, until there's I'm, a crisis. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to inc- increasingly hope the common framework is just torn up because I think uh, start pretend, over. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the 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 new framework would look like precisely. I mean, the common framework is a it, it was a logical framework in a certain right. sense, um, but 
the fact that China is arguing that already concessional World Bank loans have to be restructured suggests that there isn't actually anything common to the common framework. There just isn't. So uh, if there isn't, rather than pretending like there's a framework, maybe it's better to go through a period where no one, where everyone recognizes there isn't a framework. Um, and then we uh, start from a clean sheet of paper and move forward on the basis of that clean sheet of paper. Because right now, um, China is using the common you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating just a bit. I don't know this, but it seems like China is using some of the leverage points within the, the, the structure and sequencing of a traditional official bilateral restructuring to, to gum up the process to keep the IMF from lending. Uh, and if that continues to be the case, um, I don't think we can continue with this uh, dysfunctional framework. It is crazy that it took two years after Zambia defaulted before it got any money from the IMF. It is crazy that a year after Sri Lanka defaulted, Sri Lanka actually doesn't have any cash reserves. The only cash reserves they have are pretend. They're in a locked account at the PBOC. That they haven't gotten access to the IMF's funding. The IMF should be the crisis financier. It should be provided. That's right. their purpose. And if right, if the right. system doesn't allow the IMF to play that role, then the blockages in the system have to be changed. So, uh, so with systems, I'd like to go from one gloomy subject, debt repayment, to another taxation. Um, what about you know taxation of multinational corporations? I know that's something that has been of interest to you. What should Congress be doing if they were doing something? Why is this an important issue too, also to create growth in your view? Well, I think uh, it's an important issue for for equity. Um, I think ballpark, uh, a small American business should uh, you know, pay the headline corporate tax rate, whatever that corporate tax is. And a big American business that operates around the world should also pay basically the headline corporate tax rate. Yeah, you can get into adjustments, deductions for research, deductions for heavy investment, so forth and so on. But there's a, a fairness component. If, if a small business that doesn't operate internationally is paying 21%, uh, a big business that operates internationally should also pay 21%, you know, accepting all these different adjustments. Uh, I think there are kind of two problems right now with the, the complex tax system that emerged out of the, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. Uh, the first problem is that in some sectors that are important to the U.S. economy, uh, the differential between what's uh, called the globe, the minimum tax that's embedded in the international minimum tax that's embedded in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which is now set at half the headline rate or 10.5%, that's lower than 21. Uh, so there are some businesses that can move profits that are made in the U.S., effectively generated in the U.S., out of the U.S., and move jobs out of the U.S. and get a 10.5% profit uh, tax rate or something like that. Pharmaceuticals is the most important example here. Most American pharmaceutical companies now produce most of their patent-protected medicines outside the United States. They all report generating more of their profit outside the United States, in some cases 100% of their profit outside the United States. And they all report that the bulk of their sales or revenues 
are coming from the U.S. And the bulk of the R&D is not disclosed, also was done in the U.S. That's a crazy system. We can do better. We can create a system whereby uh, pharmaceutical companies that develop a drug in the U.S., manufactured in the U.S. rather than Ireland, Switzerland, or Singapore, they're kind of high tax, I mean, high cost, not high tax jurisdictions, sell it in the U.S. Uh, uh, I think that expands the base of high tech manufacturing in the U.S., so it's good for the U.S. economy. It would also expand the U.S. Uh, tax base. And I honestly don't believe that the arguments that this is going to devastate uh, investment and innovation and met new medicines are true. Um, a 20% tax rate uh, isn't that high. It's not punitive. Small businesses invest all the time without an expected 20% tax rate. And there are also plenty of research and development tax credits that if you're really investing in R&D, rather than just uh, living off legacy uh, patents and intellectual property, uh, you can bring your tax rate down anyway. Uh, the second problem is like essentially where should Apple's global profit be taxed? Uh, not the profit that it makes on its sales in the U.S., which now actually are taxed in the U.S., but the profit that Apple makes on its sales in Europe uh, Asia and so forth. Uh, right now, they're all reported in Ireland and they're largely taxed in Ireland. And the US has a residual taxing right uh, that brings that tax on the international profit up to the 10 and a half. I don't actually think that profit should be attributed to Ireland. It's not really being generated in Ireland. So there's a debate about whether the taxing rights on that. Apple's global profit should, to some degree, go to the jurisdictions that generate Apple sales, um, or to some degree, a bigger degree, go to the uh, headquarters jurisdiction, the home country, which is generating the intellectual property and the design and the software. Um, the, there's an international agreement, uh, the inclusive framework, uh, G20 OECD agreement, which would give a little bit of the Apple profit to the market jurisdictions, uh, but would mostly attribute these profits back to the headquarters jurisdiction and would push up the global minimum tax rate so that everybody, uh, you have to pay 15. There's like a whole bunch of other interlinked rules. Um, but, you know, Congress didn't uh, enact uh, the U.S. version of uh, the legislation that would have brought the U.S. into uh, – made the U U.S. In international tax rules consistent with the agreed, negotiated uh, global minimum. So what should we do? We should do that. Um, we should raise the minimum on – minimum tax on the international profit of U.S. companies. So if you book your profit in, you know, pick your Malta, Bermuda, and Ireland and have an effective tax rate there at, at 5%, you would owe the U.S. the difference and pull your effective tax rate up to 15. Um, we should do that. We should assess that international tax on a country-by-country country basis. So you can't blend taxes paid in Japan to offset the absence of tax and, you know, Jersey, Ireland, Singapore, Bermuda, and the Caymans. Um, and we should make it actually a little harder to set up uh, the initial structures that transfer the right uh, to these profits out of the United States. Uh, they're called cost shares, R&D cost shares. So, I mean, those are the kind of things I think we should do. I, they can be done. They will raise, let's, I'll be 
transparent. I mean, the goal is to raise revenue for the U.S. government. Um, we can redistribute that revenue back to others, but there will be a set of companies that large internationally active U.S. multinational companies that have an effective tax rate of between 5 and 12% would see their tax rate go up. Um, most domestic U.S. companies would not be affected in the slightest. Because they're not doing as much international work. So and, the, and there are companies there. That, that, in, that trade internationally. If you, if you produce in the U.S. and export from the United States, you're going to pay U.S. tax. Um, it's these complex transactions that are essentially designed to create the illusion of profits uh, outside of the U.S. Uh, multinational companies operated in Ireland are going to generate about $150 billion in profits. The Irish economy ballpark is $250 billion in its true size. That's just... Well, Brad, it sounds like you want to put a lot of accountants and tax attorneys out of work. I think I would. I think I would initially create a lot of work. You would for create a lot. Yes, exactly. But then uh, the unwind would. Uh, uh, yes, I, the goal is not to uh, to support um, uh, international tax consultants. Okay. So, last big question for you: What are you watching? What's on your radar for twenty twenty three? You, I'm sure you wake up and you look at all of this data coming in. What is the thing that that is really concerning you you most or that you're monitoring most closely? That's a good, I'm not sure. It's a good question. Um, I mean, can I, I'm going to give a kind of boring answer because I think it's the right it's answer. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. I mean, the, the, the number one question on the market's mind is the trajectory of inflation because if it doesn't follow the expected trajectory down, the Fed's going to um, keep on hiking rates and the current, market pricing for bonds and for equities will will change and if 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 there's another inflation scare um that will lead to a bond sell-off and an equity market sell-off so there's by far the most important data this year is you know u.s and european uh inflation employment um, or- actually to be honest i mean you don't think so mm. I, I i think inflation is the is a variable that will determine a lot of other things. If inflation comes down without a big uptick in unemployment, which now seems like it might happen, that's the best outcome. Uh, If inflation doesn't come down, then the Fed is going to tighten and unemployment will go up. Um, That's the only mechanism left to bring inflation back down. And the Fed's, I don't doubt the Fed's commitment or credibility to bringing inflation back down. Uh, price of oil, I mean, just matters globally. Um, I always pay a lot of attention because I think it's a policy variable, not a market variable, to how China manages its currency. So, like on a day to day basis, I, uh, I tend to watch the trajectory of China's currency. It's, it's now at like six, seven, six, eight, basically where it was in. 2008, 15 years ago. Um, I think that's actually a level which is pretty weak relative to the dollar and that still encourages a lot of manufacturing in China. Um, but it is a variable that I, uh, that I watch uh, uh, closely. And um, as, as we mentioned, uh, 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 everyone in the financial, in the, in, in international financial markets is paying a lot more attention to the yen and Japanese rates. Um, so those are kind of the things I kind of on a day-to-day basis, like I, I uh, track. I mean, the, the, the th- other thing I watch is like I'm just kind of waiting to see if there will be a model 
for how China can restructure, uh, Chinese policy banks can restructure the debt of one or two or three of the really poor countries. And then on a, a more personal level, we haven't really talked about it, but I, I've always liked Turkey as an emerging economy. I liked as in I like tracking it. I also happen to like visiting. Uh, my my parents spent uh, the year after retirement uh, as visiting professors at uh, Bosphorus University in Istanbul. So I have a little bit of a personal connection. Um, and, you know, Erdogan is up for re-election. There's just a lot of... Uh, pent up financial uh, stress inside the Turkish economy. Uh, interest rates are so far below inflation. The central bank has more dollar debt than it has dollar reserves. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of uh, quite, quite interested to see how that story plays out. We'll see if they follow Lebanon. Didn't they just uh, devalued by 90% overnight? Uh, we hope they don't follow Lebanon. Lebanon yes. is... Uh, <laughs> it's a basket case there. Well, Brad, thank you so much for joining me today. For our, our listeners, we'll provide links to your papers and your books that we've discussed. And what is your Twitter handle? So people can uh, find you there. Brad underscore set, sir. I'm not, okay. not complicated. Okay, very, very good. And also, can anyone access your blog, Follow the Money on the they CFR can. website? Okay, I highly recommend that. So finally, thank you to also to all the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, managing editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website, econview.com. And if you can, support us on Substack. So Brad, thank you so much today. This was a great conversation. Very thought provoking. Thanks for inviting me and thanks for um, letting me expound on my uh, rather uh, unusual sets of interests. <laughs> it's perfect for us. <laughs> That's a perfect econ view type of thing. So thank you. Sure. Thanks.